tens of millions of families with Alzheimer's disease and dementia all over the world, including our family. We are Alls in the Fam. I'm Alan Fair. And I'm Polly Fair Noise. We're siblings, we are parents, but we're also caregivers. This is our podcast. This is our support group. Welcome to our family. Alzheimer's sucks, but this family lives, laughs, and learns as we fight for a cure. Welcome. Hey, Polly. Hey, Alan. So this is exciting because this is our first episode that is a two-part episode. So this is part two. And uh, with our very special guest from our previous episode, why don't you tell everyone more about it? So welcome to episode 10. Um, On this episode, we have Bridget Reynolds again from the Memory Disorders Program at Georgetown University. So we first met Bridget, you will recall, when she evaluated our mom at the Memory Disorders Clinic, where she specializes in evaluating and treating memory programs. But Bridget is also a research investigator conducting clinical trials of potential new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And in this episode, it's all about our experience having our mom participate in a research study. And here, Bridget tells us the many benefits of participating in research and about some current research studies and even ones that you can do right from the comfort of your own home. Um, She told us about some breakthroughs in the Alzheimer's research and we're really excited about it. Um, So stay tuned, listen. Yeah, here's our interview with Bridget. Welcome back, Bridget. We're so glad you agreed to talk with us. Today, we're going to focus on talking about the study my mom was involved in. So I'll just, as a small preamble, I'll say, when your loved one first gets a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia, likely Alzheimer's, it's kind of devastating. You're like, you might have seen the symptoms before, but it is devastating because there is no cure. No one's ever survived Alzheimer's and gotten better. Um, But I think studies... We were so lucky because I never, I wouldn't have thought about a study until Bridget mentioned, well, there are studies she could get involved in. And that was not necessarily hope because we know, I mean, these are early studies, but it was a way to fight, it felt like to me. And we really want to keep fighting Alzheimer's. Um, Bridget, thank you for that. And um, do you always recommend to people to join a study or was there something special about our family? (laughs) Um, I will recommend that people join research. I will, we, all of us in our program will be discussing research with anyone who's a possible research candidate. So, and at the time, uh, most of the research studies are testing for people with either mild cognitive impairment or mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease back in 2014. So your mom coming in with a, with, a, with a score on the mini mental state exam that would qualify her for studies, I'm definitely going to want to talk to her and the family about that, yes. So I want to kind of go back a little bit and say, you know, you mentioned in the last bit of our conversation uh, prior that coming in early and getting involved early is also very helpful to both the patient themselves and then also to the research and the advancement of treatment for Alzheimer's. So, 
you know, I know we're going to talk about my mom's study and then about what we can do if we know that there's, um, there's Alzheimer's or dementia in our genetic background. Um, so, uh, Bridget, you recommended, well, you told us about a couple of studies and we chose one that I believe was, uh, a study drug, a research study that was hoping, um, it was for, was it solanazumab or I don't even know how to pronounce it correctly, but it was, it was going to try and target the, um, amyloid plaque that is, um, tends to build up in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Um, so let's see, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't know much about amyloid. Is that, are those kinds of studies still going on? Um, the ones that target the amyloid? Yes, that they're still going on. So there are two, you know, the two primary proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease are amyloid and tau. And amyloid is the biomarker or the protein that rises first. Um, again, amyloid begins to build 10 to 20 years before the onset of memory loss, before the beginning of cognitive symptoms. Tau uh, studies are now, uh, anti-tau studies are now underway as well. That wasn't the case when, you, when you're back in uh, 2015, when your mom was in this, the solanuzumab trial. But um, we are still uh, believing that amyloid is a good target, uh, not necessarily the only target. And so thankfully, there are, we're targeting other things as well, the inflammation, now tau. Um, but anti-amyloid treatments, both immunotherapy or otherwise, are still going on. And in fact, solanuzumab is, is still being tested in an earlier population now in, the, in what's called the A4 uh, study. So solanuzumab itself, that um, monoclonal antibody is, is still under research in a large prevention trial. Okay, well maybe I got And has the, based on the studies that have been done on it already, has the level of enthusiasm uh, decreased a little bit, that that is the, the marker. It seems that uh, you read a lot about these studies not showing the type of results that were being hoped for and um, maybe based on it once the amyloids can be seen, it's too late. So how do you identify a patient who um, might be a candidate when they don't have the amyloid built up yet and, and the difficulty around that is, can you talk about where, like the journey that uh, these studies have been on and where it's at now? Sure, sure. And that's a really good question. And actually, solanuzumab is a good example to use because when it was first studied, it was studied in people with mild and moderate dementia. And that trial was negative. But then when they took the subset out of the milder people, it seemed like it may have been more positive. They, they, that was could have trended towards, if you could throw out the, the moderate people, then maybe the mild people would be okay. And then, so we had to do a whole nother study. And then they did, and this was the one that your mom was in, I believe, because the years going together. But in, in, and so they took just mild people and MCI and tested them with solanuzumab. And that was again negative. In the meantime, now the prevention trial is underway. So it's not that, and this takes you kind of through the idea of anti-amyloid, 
although there it's been a lot of debate in the research community with all of the negative trials but the main thing that that i believe in in if the research that's going on now is supporting this belief that it's because we're intervening too late that if you use these anti-amyloid compounds when the amyloid has been there for 20 plus years already then the cascade of damage has gone on too much so that if, if instead we intervene at an earlier time when there's elevated amyloid but no memory loss symptoms, then that's when these medications are more likely to be effective. Yeah. So how would we know if someone, say my age, I'm in my um, mid-50s, how would you know if I had amyloid in my brain if I'm showing no outward symptoms of it? I mean, it's starting to build up. You wouldn't, um, Polly, but but now that's that's also changing too. So I don't know. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do, I don't, I, I don't know if you've the APT web study. So that's in it. <laughs> yeah, all three of us, oh. four of us, I think. Alan's not because he's not fifty. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, Bridget, for interrupting. Go ahead. Everybody I know to join in, but. Um, so that we're trying to we're trying to that that study is trying to pilot test. So we have I think it's two hundred thousand people that that we want ultimately in that study, and so you do online testing, and they're trying to see if that test that given can pick up hints of people who are trending in that way. They would then be referred to a clinical trial site, and they could have then they would have an amyloid. There there are several that we can measure amyloid. The the biggest way, well, either through a spinal tap or through an amyloid PET scan, and hopefully soon on the horizon, a blood test. That will make things yeah. awesome. Wow. So you wouldn't know about the elevated amyloid, and we're trying to fine-tune testing that we can give to people that will, we can use as a better indicator, and ultimately we hope to have a blood test. Um, that would be used. And, and I don't know if you all are aware, but one of the monoclonal antibodies has um, been submitted for FDA approval. That's aducanumab. So we may have our first, by Biogen is the sponsor of that study, we may have our first anti, our first disease modifying treatment available. I don't know when the FDA is going to make that decision. But if that gets approved, it's going to be approved for people with mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's disease. And every one of those people is going to have to have an amyloid scan. So I don't know what we're going to do, you know, community-wise uh, when that happens. Because, of course, the, the, the cost of, the, of, of all of this testing for the number of people that are going to want this treatment, in addition to the people like your mom who progressed to moderate stage, would not be eligible for the treatment. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to listen to that because I I hear this conversation and it makes me very interested in this molecule. So if there is so if, if Biogen puts this therapy out on the market even though I'm a uh, even though I'm a man in my mid 40s that isn't that isn't showing it, I'd be very interested because as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm genetically predisposed to it. So if there's something that can, uh, that might do something to cut off this amyloid and tau development off at the pass, I'm going to want to, I'm going to want to try and try and get it. And I know that, you know, the FDA, there's very strict, uh, things that it's indicated for, but what do you think the journey would be for someone 
who's in my patient profile to obtain that as things stand now? Well, there would be, it would be out of the question. <laughs> That maybe it's the bad news, but the good news is is that the uh, prevention trial that's starting up now is called the AHEAD study, and it's A three four five. And so what they're doing with this is getting into for the first time primary prevention. So secondary prevention in medicine would be treating amyloid when it's already there. So even with the prevention trials uh, right now. To, to get in, you have to have elevated amyloid. In this new trial, they're taking that, dropping it down a step, and they're taking it not with people with elevated amyloid, but people with intermediate amyloid, and giving and seeing if they can prevent that amyloid from rising to the point where we call it elevated by dosing these people even earlier. And people like you, Alan, with the family history, will be invited to screen for that trial at a younger age when we because we know that we're going to be moving back to people that you know you you what you do is you take the onset of of your parents memory loss symptoms and take 20 years away and that's when you could uh try to get an estimate of of the the children's risk so you would see their amyloid also rising about 20 years earlier than the onset of their of their parents' memory loss. And so we're going in research down in age and, and earlier in the earlier entering into the primary prevention realm. Whereas when I started uh, 20 years ago at Georgetown, none of this was happening. So it kind of dovetails into both of your questions on this journey, is it amyloid, is it not? Well, I say, even though we don't have a disease-modifying treatment yet, it's really the advances in research. When you look at the past 20 years compared to the 100 years before that, when you know Alzheimer first identified the tangles and plaques in a, in a young woman, actually in her in her 40s, um, there was you know no progress up until the 1970s, and and now you know just in the since 2020. I mean, since 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 the nineteen like nineteen since I started at Georgetown uh, <laughs> twenty years ago, there's been a there's been a lot of a lot of progress, and I'm very excited. So, um, when my mom did her study, one of the first things, first part of it was she had a PET scan, um, and um, I felt like we were pretty lucky to have that because I recall doing some research because I wanted to know, I wanted to make sure we were that what was wrong with my mom wasn't something different, something less horrible. Um, and you said the only way to diagnose Alzheimer's at the time, 100% was basically an autopsy or this very expensive PET scan. So my mom got one as part of her study. And I think in that study, um, you had to have a positive PET scan or positive meaning it showed amyloid build up is that what it was yeah before you could be in the study right because it's an anti-amyloid treatment and mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to be giving it to people who don't have elevated amyloid right scan or any biomarker to measure amyloid is not diagnostic so you your mom you know you could have had she could have had a positive pet scan someone could have a positive amyloid pet scan and still not have alzheimer's disease 
But when you take all the pieces together, you know, when you're looking at whether or not someone's a candidate for either an approved drug or a research drug, the, the, our ability to measure amyloid through a PET scan is also something that's new since the 20 years. Yeah. And, and you, you probably recall, you're not given a full report. It's just positive or negative. Right. But for a lot of people, that's still a motivation to enter into a trial. Um, yeah. They want to know. Um, and when that blood test comes around, um, it's going to be really It's going to be a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and I remember it was very important to be at the time, although I don't know why. Do Do... As part of your study or even in clinic, do you guys test the genetic, um, the marker, the APOE4, um, is it for the one that's, anyway, do you test that of um, your patients in clinic or is that only if they're in a study? Lipoprotein E, four being the, comes in three forms, two, three, and four, and four is the form that's more associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's disease, and you get one from each parent, so two copies of four would be the greatest risk. Clinically, we do not typically, uh, it's not covered by insurance, mm -hmm. so we don't do uh, genetic testing. Occasionally we do because it, it can be helpful if you're trying to differentiate between which kind of dementia and someone ha that had two copies of four would might push you more in a direction of Alzheimer's disease because they carry that risk. Um, but in research, people may respond differently to treatments uh, based on their APOE4 genotype. And we, so we need to know that. Yeah. It, it is always a part of research, usually not disclosed uh, because we don't, I don't think in your mom's case, we would have disclosed that, but sometimes it is. Uh, so for example, the uh, aducanumab, the one that's uh, monoclonal antibody that is Biogen is applied for FDA approval for it, it, people, if, if you have uh, APOE4, you could be at greater risk for some of the potential side effects. So it's dosed differently okay. uh, and titrated at a different rate. So, okay. so we know and, and APOE could influence, APOE gene, it could influence how people respond to different treatments. And it's, okay. it's a risk, the genetic marker that we know the most about. So uh, just spoiler alert, Bonnie and I went and found out what our genotypes were for that. <laughs> So we, I, we um, actually, I may ask you to do this at my mom's next study to test hers. We'll pay for it. Not as, cause I know we can't reveal what was in the study that's owned by the study, not by you or me. Um, but anyway, just interesting. Um, so I, I, I want to talk about the study because we had such a phenomenal um, experience being in a study aside from whether the, whether the study drug, you know, had a positive outcome or not. We, we came, my mom was in an infusion study and she came in, we brought her in once a month for an infusion. Um, and I would just say that being exposed to you and the other researchers who were helping um, once a month was just the best thing that came out of um, her having this horrible disease in that we could 
we could ask questions. We were, um, she had medical, not care, but evaluations all, all the time on a regular level. And getting an appointment with the neurology provider um, is hard enough. Getting seen on a regular basis is hard enough. I've, I mean, I've talked to friends who are like, you're seeing um, Bridget Reynolds or someone else once a month. And I was like, oh, yeah. I didn't even realize everyone doesn't get to do that. By the way, the nicest people work on the research studies, the best, most wonderful um, nurses, doctors, people. Um, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just that uh, they're, you know, kind people to begin with. But anyway, what do you see as the benefits of a person being involved in a research study outside of, you know, we just get to, uh, interact with you guys so often. Yeah, I would say really that is one of the things that I would like to, that I use when talking about people that thinking about participating in a research study is you really do become part of a family. It feels like a family. And even if the drug doesn't work, like you said, there, you're, you're part of a process and it's that, it's, it's that hope I mean, the, the, all of the hope really in, for the future of treatment of Alzheimer's disease lies within research. Um, okay. No way to make progress without people like your mom and you participating in studies like these. So it's you're, you're, you, you become actively engaged in a process um, that's as much for the family as for the patient. And I think you guys can attest to that because- absolutely. Your mom would have a very different, uh, uh, I, I mean, a very different, I think, take on, on coming and, and all that you went through to keep her in the game. And, and, be, and, and even the fact that she was in an infusion study when she doesn't like needles. And so, you know, so the hope that being part of a, of, um, of a family uh, and, and the engagement, and and then lastly, the potential for early access to 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 a new treatment. Right. So I I'll point out here that I recall my mom. I think the study was 18 months of infusions, and then the study she was in, they did something. I don't know if it was called an extension or something. Where even though we had no idea at the time whether she had been getting the placebo or the drug. Um, once her study ended, they, she could still come back in and get the actual, for sure, the drug. It wouldn't, it was, was it called an extension? Is that it, Bridget? It's called an extension. Mm -hmm. An extension study. And so, um, tell us about that. What is that? How, how do those work? I, I mean, I remember it was great. Um, so you, you so, getting maybe the drug, I don't know. <laughs> getting the drug so um if you take 18 months and i don't remember in the study if there was a one-third or a one-half chance of placebo do you remember that i, I, I don't know but let's say it was one many of our studies are typically it's either one-third or one-half and more often one-half so for 18 months your mom's in the study and let's say she was in the placebo group at the end of that 18 months you know it's it's a, it's a big motivator for people if they know that they will be offered, they have to get through the double blind portion, but if they, then they would be offered a chance to continue on without chance of placebo. 
And so it's, it's what is, um, often it's determined before the study starts. Yes, we're planning to do an extension study where everybody will have a chance to be on active treatment without chance of placebo. And it's a big motivator for people. I mean, if you have a, a 18 month again to a two year study where you could have been going in once a month and getting placebo the whole time, if you didn't think there was any, you know, there could be a chance that your mom would never get any treatment, then that wouldn't be, it, it just it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel as good to a lot of people. So that's, and, and that also gives the, the scientific and the investigators a, a chance to see more information about how what we're ultimately going to know if a drug's approved, how it lasts after 18 months. And the reason, but because, and so if in the, in the studies enroll over, I think solanuzumab enrolled over a year period, at least more like two years, so some people are going to be out of the study and then into the extension study while some people are just beginning. So it's just a way to get more information and to give people, to give people a chance to, to get the actual uh, research drug. Yeah, I, I, was, um, I was pleased to realize at, that at the end of the study, she was going to be getting the actual research drug. So I hadn't realized that before. And we'd already seen such a benefit to being exposed to you, all the research, all the other people working with you each month, being part of the family, as you say. Um, so I think I, I, had, I had no idea that, that research did, drugs did that, then gave you the drug. Um, and we were in a a study where the drug had shown some promise in previous versions, or I think. Yeah. So I, I'm just going to ask you a little bit about informed consent about the drugs with Alzheimer's patients. Is that difficult? I mean, I remember that I needed to agree for my mom to have the study as her primary caregiver or the person who was signing papers for her. Um, is that hard to do with Alzheimer's patients? I remember my mom, of course, didn't want to have an infusion, didn't remember why, but she did agree each time, and you guys asked her each time. Yeah, um, it is, as we've moved to earlier and earlier, you know, people's uh, ability to make those decisions is higher. At the time that your mom and well, she was she really, I mean, it was, you know, it was in, in the case of mild dementia or mild Alzheimer's disease, I would say it's, it's not harder. Uh, they ha you have to have their, their family there, but as it progresses, then uh, eventually, sometimes even in 18-month studies where someone enters in mild, they've progressed to moderate and don't have the ability to make decisions at the time they're rolling into the extension study. And that's why we have a family, it's a legally authorized representative sign for them at the point that they're not that we don't feel like they have the ability to to understand really it's understand what they're consenting to yeah well i i also want to just give a plug for studies um uh we were incredibly well informed i got tons of written and um oral information about the paper about the program the study she was involved in but also we got lunch every time we came for all of us <laughs> yeah. um, that was provided in the study, free parking, yeah. which in Georgetown is tough. Um, and for us as a family, we made it fun because we would, we didn't eat the lunch 
at Georgetown, as, as lovely as it was, um, we went, we took my mom out to lunch afterwards and it was always like a, it was just a nice way to spend the day with her. We even had um, her grandkids come once in a while, but then found that they were a little too boisterous to sit still because in an infusion study, you know, we had to set her up on the infusion or you did. And then, um, I mean, I think it took, you know, 45 minutes for the drug to slowly drip in. Um, but anyway, just all good experience all around. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to go back again and say, you know, we started her in that study relatively soon after we in, started seeing you, Bridget. And the ability for us to be with you and your staff and for you to get to know our mother so personally has been such a benefit to her care overall. And, and it would have been so much more clinical as opposed to just so, um, so much. So there's the social pieces and the, um, the ability to impart knowledge specifically about our mother uh, based on her personality and her decline was incredible. So uh, we became study junkies after this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if you all wanted to talk about this, about the study that you joined or. Well, we are. I I mean, I am going to, I'm going to bring that up. So uh, thanks to Bridget, we, um, we joined the APT study, which is um, the Alzheimer's prevention trial, which is all online. And we just log in every three or four months and take a series of online sort of brain game tests. And it just tracks our um, progress over time. We get a dashboard on that where we can see how we're progressing over time. And, um, and the tests are hard. I will just say that. <laughs> I, I guess I won't go into it like some people um, that have been in the media a lot recently. <laughs> I would have a question. Would you say they're, they're intimidating? Would that no. be? Not at all. They're really easy. It's just, it, um, for me personally, it's scary because I, I worry all the time that I might be losing my memory and, and progress in the same way that my mom has. And I'm 20 years, you know, I, I'm in that range where 20 years from now would be the age when my mom started showing some symptoms. So, um, but no, they are not intimidating. It's actually really fun now that we've been doing it for almost a year to, to be able to track my own progress and see that I'm not declining. Thank you. <laughs> um, or if I saw something where I was, where there was an issue, I might call you Bridget and say, Hey, I, I want you to evaluate me. Or I might, you know, reach out to my primary care doctor or something like, or something. But I, I think it's really an important study. And then, um, all of us signed up for a study that was uh, comparing men to women with Alzheimer's. Um, and that study was at uh, up in New York. So we got a chance to visit with Alan. And um, the results of that study are just now coming out. Bridget, you found it and sent me a copy of it. Thank you. Um, and we are going to report on that at a later visit. Um, I'm glad. A, a later podcast. Um, But yeah, and again, we did a lot of the same tests that you did with our mom um, and met some lovely people at a different research hospital. Um, And just, again, a wonderful experience. I 
would encourage anyone listening to this podcast, get involved. It, it is empowering in a sense. It gives you a little bit of hope and you are, have access to the best information and really the top researchers, the best people working on solving al Alzheimer's. And, and maybe we can talk about how the average uh, person or family would start. I, I think we're very fortunate in terms of where we're geographically located in the DC and uh, New York area and have access to be able to physically go to some of um, these places where some of the most groundbreaking research is occurring. But for someone listening in a rural part of the country that's seeing, uh, oh, I'm recognizing these symptoms in one of my loved ones, how, how do they get started on that journey? What, what, what's a great resource uh, in which to begin? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I think to point out the, the vast ge geographical differences, I mean, some people have very minimal access. Uh, hopefully with more telemedicine that we're doing, that will change some. Um, but, but for people over the age of 50 right now, really good way to get in is by joining the APT web study. There are also registries. Uh, one goes down to 18 out of San Francisco, the um, brainhealthregistry.org. And the registries and the investigators are sort of working together on these things. So I think that arguably the best way is by joining a registry. And I can give you a list of three of them that are ongoing, the APT web study, again, being doing a, a step again a bit beyond that and directly referring, although the other registries are doing that too, re referring people to clinical trial sites. And then now, of course, with the AHEAD study that I met that, so that's beginning into the process of primary prevention and dropping the age to 55 for screening it for people yes. who have a relative or it's a relative, or, or a known uh, genetic marker. Um, or both. <laughs> exactly. You know, would, would open that up. And so again, you know, just, I guess following, I think the Alzheimer's Association will have some information about trials and a, a program called Trial Match, which you can sign up for and it'll tell you a trial that you may be eligible to screen for. So I'm really putting a lot of hope in the in the AHEAD study and very excited about that and how it's opening it up to, you know, when you think about a heart attack and cholesterol, we don't wait until someone has a heart attack to treat them for having high cholesterol. Why do we, you know, we have to do the same thing and have that same plan with Alzheimer's disease. And the study, at least the paper that I uh, read about the study that uh, the report from the study you participated in New York has given some very valuable information helping us learn. It's like, when does amyloid start to develop and who's at highest risk? Um, and that I, there's gonna be a lot more discussion about that, st that study too. I mean, it, it made me for one think, you know, hey, you know, see, you know, if, well, anyway, I have a question that m might go beyond your area of expertise, but uh, one, I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear your excitement about where these uh, where these studies are going and, and what it 
what it could mean. It, it, if we leap ahead to when some of these therapies are FDA approved and on the market, I would imagine uh, access is going to be a huge challenge. You even said before, so many people are going to want this. And just as there's so much great innovation happening in the clinical studies, is there anything, uh, is there any disruptive innovation occurring that uh, could change the way in which we get access to, to therapies in the future that you're aware of that are exciting for you? It seems like it's gonna be a big issue when we get to that stage of this. Yeah, I think it's gonna be an issue. The answer of the study is gearing up for it, but I, I wanted to speak just about two things in addition um, is also uh, the, to highlight the importance of more minority participation in research. So we have the uh, geographical concerns as some people are far away from a research site and maybe we can, with telemedicine, do a little bit better job on that. But we also have to get more minority participation because, and, and don't want a situation where any new approved drug, we understand how it works in white people, because white people were the only ones that participated. We need to know about how these drugs work in all people. So, so we have to do a better job of reaching out to minority communities and, and, and getting people signed up uh, for these research studies. Yeah, and Bridget, um, I remember going to the initial luncheon at Georgetown, and um, one of the slides that really shocked us, or me, was um, the fact that some of these minorities have a much, much higher incidence of Alzheimer's just by virtue, and Hispanic, which my mother is, of course, Puerto Rican, is one of them, that where the incidence in compared to uh, Caucasians was so much higher. Can you speak to that as, as a level of importance along with the treatment variants that might be indicated by race? Right, right. And so we're learning more about that as well. And that's why, again, another reason why we need uh, more participation because what is making those differences? One of the things we know is that, you know, cardiovascular disease is more common in minorities and cardiovascular disease is a risk factor for so many things, including Alzheimer's disease. But in order to understand more, we need more participation so that we can look, you know, are there specific genetic differences that put these people at risk? So we just need to, to keep at it. Um, and understand better because, yes, we do know that there's higher risk in both Hispanic and African-American population, higher incidence, higher risk, and lower research participation. You know, it's so, it's so frustrating just to bring it back to my mother in general in that when you look at all of the risk factors, she's so low on them and yet still has it. So, you know, no cardiovascular issues, uh, her diet was really good. She's very active and very social, all those things. And so, you know, it does go back to, we need the study to see if there's a genetic marker as opposed to that, you know, lifestyle markers might exacerbate, but that can't just be it. Exactly. Yeah. Do we have any data as to why there's such low participation in minority communities is uh do we know is there a lack of trust is there a belief that it is too expensive um is 
uh, are, is there just not a, a top of the funnel awareness of the existence of these things, even as options? Do we have any insights as to why? Yeah, less it's all of the it's all of the things that you mentioned, and also, for example, like research sites like ours, we don't have. We we would need we need the tests are available in Spanish but we don't have investigators that speak Spanish. And before we got on a hiring freeze due to the pandemic, our, our goal was we were going to have our next uh, research coordinator be Spanish speaking. Um, so that's, you know, one of the barriers for some of the sites as well. But, you know, DC has a very large African-American population, but you're not, we're, we're not doing very well in that either. Um, Sometimes or the, the NIH will, will start to mandate, uh, and I believe in solanizumab, in, in, in many of the trials, there is like every one in five people needs to be a minority participant or the site can't continue on screening. We need more of that and we need to do more outreach. Yeah, it's, it's, it, as, as much as this has been talked about, again, over for 20 years, uh, we're not making as much progress as we should. But we're that's, working on it. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. I, I, I'm glad to know that um, and glad that we have a platform where maybe we can, we can help drive some of that awareness our, our, ourselves. So it's been a really insightful conversation. I, I don't know if we have more questions prepared, but I certainly find myself feeling like we've, we've enjoyed and have been privileged to have a lot of your time, Bridget. So maybe we should start thinking about wrapping up, guys. Yeah, I just had one uh, question, Bridget. One of the benefits of working with you was also learning about drugs that are already on the market that could potentially help my mother. One of them that we ended up um, getting a prescription for her, for our mother, was Namenda. And we saw, we believe, a tremendous benefit from that. We're assuming it was because of that drug. Um, our mother had developed some incontinence issues, and after going on that drug, they completely went away. They mostly went away. During mostly the day, went they went away. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But it was a huge problem during the day. And um, I've been telling all of my friends with loved ones with Alzheimer's about that drug, and many people don't seem to know about it. So is there anything else that's out there where you have seen very promising results other than Namenda? And is it typical what we saw with our mother after going on that drug? Because she was well into the moderate phase of Alzheimer's when she started that. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, uh, Tracy. Thanks for asking it. So uh, memantine was the last drug to be approved for Alzheimer's disease, and that was in 2003. Um, and before that, the cholinesterase inhibitors, um, Aricept, uh, Razadine, and Exelon. Um, so memantine actually was approved for use in moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. So its indication to start it is when, when memory loss is at the moderate stage with the mini mental state exam score of, I, I believe in the study, uh, it was 15 to five. So your mom started, I think her mini mental state exam score was about 17. 
Um, like the cholinesterase inhibitors, memantine is not disease modifying, but provides symptomatic benefits. So it doesn't ultimately, because it doesn't target the underlying pathology directly, it, it won't halt or slow, but it'll help with the symptoms. And so I always like to hear when people really notice that a symptomatic medication like memantine is, is they feel that it's helping. I would say most people would tell me that they can't tell whether or not it's helping. And then there's some people, probably about the same small percentage that will say, I know it's not helping, as would say, hey, this drug really made a difference. Memantine may help some with behaviors as well. So as we've learned a little bit more over time about memantine, it may help with some of the behavioral symptoms. Um, but there's nothing else that's been added uh, to our repertoire of symptomatic treatment since memantine in 2003. And Thank then a lot you. Of things that are advertised, you know, like Prevagen or supplements, and you know, we basically discourage that because there is no, if you're an evidence-based program and there's no evidence for these things and you kind of worry about spending a lot of money or who's getting all that money for a treatment that hasn't been proven efficacious. Right, they haven't been through the clinical studies that you conduct on a daily basis. So I, I tell my friends that too. Um, you know, it, there's just no good reason to put someone on a supplement. It's basically a supplement. It's not a drug, and they are not studied. Right. Well, Bridget, I thank you so much for your time. Is, is there anything that we didn't cover with you that maybe you had uh, prepared to talk about or, or wanted to mention before we, before we wrap up? No, I just want to thank all of you for this. I think this is a wonderful thing. And I think that uh, families are perhaps more likely to initially listen to other families that have gone through it. And I think that it's just uh, remarkable, again, the way that you've supported your mom through this process. And I think um, this kind of outreach that you're doing is a great thing. So, so thank you. And, and for your participation, all of you in, in the research effort, because that's, that's the way we're, we're gonna, we're gonna fix this. And we are. Great. Yep. Thank yep. you, we're, Bridget, so much for being here with us. We're really glad to be in this community, uh, despite the fact that a horrible disease is what makes us a part of this community. We've met really wonderful people. So, so thanks for welcoming, uh, welcoming us into your family, and thanks for being part of ours. All right. Thank you. Take thanks, care. Bridget. Bye. Thanks for listening to Alls in the Fam. In the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia, we are all family. Find us at Alls in the Fam on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, allsinthefampodcast.com. We appreciate you clicking that subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher may be. Alzheimer's sucks, but we are in it together. We are Alls in the Family. Talk soon.